0: Do you see yourself separate from nature? Or maybe you dream of camping in the wilderness, but getting geared up is expensive, or perhaps you don't know how to do it. It's a steep learning curve, expensive gear, and sometimes the dreaded embarrassment that comes with being a beginner may only widen this gap. But there's so much to gain from nature. Emerald LaFortune grew up being lured into the wilderness by her parents who placed little pieces of candy in the middle of hiking trails to guide her along. Now she works as a fly fishing and white water rafting guide and is extremely grateful for what her parents did for her. Day to day, Emerald pushes back against mentalities that limit access to the outdoors while also trying to conserve and protect it. It's a complex balance that she knows she can't do alone. Join us for this exploration in the outdoor community. You're listening to Traverse Talks. So Emerald LaFortune, it's a beautiful name. Thanks. might seem obvious for people, but it's to me, you know, shiny and luxurious and wealthy. So what does your name mean to you?
1: To me it's always felt like a little bit of a mouthful, Um, but I'm really proud of the name because it is tied to my family in the way that my dad was a earth science teacher. So when people ask where Emerald came from, I say, oh, you know, both my brother and I got rock names and I don't have a middle name. So my parents didn't even give me the out of like, oh, we'll name her, you know, Emerald Sarah LaFortune and then she can choose later. They were like Emerald or bust, yeah.
0: How have you grown into this name that your family gave you?
1: Mm. I think now it's really it's become really helpful. Luckily, maybe because of the name, but probably just because of personality, I've ended up being in these spaces of outdoor writing and guiding and um, and communication and spaces where having a distinct name I think is a real advantage because there aren't a lot of emeralds in the space. And so, for better or worse, sometimes I'll write something and you know, four years later think, oh, I wish that would melt into the search engine optimization depth so like I don't want that to pop up but for better or worse it's um, it's distinct enough that it's been able to sort of carry me forward
0: Mm. you mentioned some things you wrote in the past that you wish would sort of disappear this is interesting to me so you wrote a guide for gender equity for outdoorsy dudes Mm. many years ago yeah Mm -hmm. what was the original published date of that
1: the original published date was right around when the conversation about Me Too sort of hit a national scale. And uh, I think I originally titled it something involving Me Too, just because that was really the mm-hmm. what was catching people's attention in that time. And uh, what I was seeing was a lot of the mostly men in my outdoors community were sort of saying, yeah, we're behind this, we support you this is awful. We had no idea, which is always an interesting one. And so given that, I think that there was some space to say, okay, you care about this. What's the action in the next step? How can you take this beyond just sort of signaling you care and move it into your everyday life? Because I was also seeing men who I had been in community with who I knew had been actively working against sort of a culture of gender equity or their actions had been um flowing against that culture of gender equity and and it's hard to it's hard to see yourself sometimes. I've run into that. I think we all run into that.
0: Well, it, it, that's so enlightening for you to say because you then wrote an update to this guide for outdoorsy dudes. Can you explain why you wrote an update to it and then we'll go into what's in it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think to start it was really centered around the gender binary which I've learned a lot about in the last four years. And so it felt like it was really excluding the experience of somebody who doesn't identify as a woman or a man. Um, And certainly there's lots of folks that are genderqueer, non-binary in our outdoor community. And while I can't speak to that experience directly, I wanted that acknowledged in the piece. And also there was a lot of just my language in the original, original, it was a blog post. Originally, somebody pointed out that I had sort of misunderstood and mislabeled the difference between gender and sexuality. You know, like when I wrote that, I was still in this space of understanding how all these identities piece apart. And so when I went back to it, I wanted to just update to where I was at, knowing that in four years, I'll probably read it again and go facepalm. Let's uh. (laughs) let's try again or there will be something else out there by someone with you know more intersections of experience than me and it'll be irrelevant.
0: I read the updated version mm. and two things struck me. One, I think it's fabulous that you were very open to saying I've learned new things since mm. this originally was posted and acknowledging that we are learning new things mm-hmm. uh, because uh, I feel as if um, many people assume you have to have it right, right out of the shoot. And it puts pressure on others and fear Mm -hmm. to not say what needs to be said so we can all have hard conversations to discuss things. Mm -hmm. So that was refreshing Mm. to say, well, I've learned a lot since then and here are the things I've done and here's the update, which was helpful for me, even Mm. as a woman reading what it's like and what men can do in outdoor spaces to be more aware. Can you tell our listener about some of those tips that you wrote?
1: Yeah, I think I wrote about things like, um, you know, and some of it ultimately is always going to be systemic in the sense of like, if you care about gender equity, you need to be working towards systemic change at the city, state, federal, global level. And so not minimizing the importance of changing systems as a whole. It can't all be individual action, but a lot of it can start at that community, family, workplace level. And so I think some of the examples were things like not assuming that because somebody asks you to go skiing, they're asking you on a date. Like, And I hear that from a lot of my outdoors friends who are at really, you know, top-notch levels. They're really pushing it. They're so excited to go get after it often that means a crew on the mountains or on the river of mixed gender and when there's sort of always this background fear of like is this person going to think I'm hitting on them are they going to think that I'm expecting more from this than I am and often I see that fall along gendered lines where um, you ask a guy friend to go kayaking he maybe reads into that wrong and then all of a sudden you're in the wilderness and you've just shut down his advances and for you know hopefully that's a guy friend that's going to respect your boundary and your no um, and also we have lots of stories and experiences of women being in situations like that and not feeling safe to say no and um, so I think it's it's a small thing of um, really of consent you should never even assume something is romantic and never regardless of you're making a physical move or not so little things like that on sort of the Cultural side of things. There were also things like talking about your pay scale on the chairlift. You know, being willing to share what you're making when you guide when you're in your outdoor education program. And I, I frame it as outdoorsy dudes because I've been an outdoorsy dude before. Like I see outdoorsy dude more as a um, as a adherence to the dominant culture of the outdoors, which up until this point has been really white male heterosexual um, of a certain education level, of a certain socioeconomic level. Uh, And so trends towards involving men, which is why dude, I think, fits, but also a lot of um, women in my space and myself have been, you know, a dude at times. And so I think that Another big one is looking at like who's getting attention in the outdoors right now and who's getting space to tell their stories. And I'll hear from folks in the outdoors like, oh, it seems so unfair. Like that person's not even that good of a skier and they got the feature in the film just because they're a woman or just because they're not white or just because of, you know, they're from a different country or have a story of immigration. And um, I think that that's a good one to recognize when it bubbles up in yourself and also push back on like, who says we only need stories from experts? Um, What's the ultimate goal of storytelling in the outdoors? And is the person doing the most extreme things the only voice we need to hear?
0: I love it. And what is the ultimate goal of storytelling in the outdoors?
1: Mm, Well, I think it's like any type of storytelling. You just need stories of all type because it's about helping people understand their own experiences and give words to their own experiences. Um, that would be my goal for outdoor storytelling. The reality of outdoor storytelling right now is that it's mostly tied to capitalism and selling- Gear. gear. Yeah, <laughs> selling gear and selling trips and experiences. And so, but even if that's your goal, I would posit the same thing of, you know, if I think about, I think about what got me into fishing, right? And for me, it was, you know, I loved rivers, had grown up on the river, loved white water, and fishing had always been really adjacent to that. I had seen fly fishing occur. But when it came to actually learning how to fish, I have this great friend named Laurel who grew up fishing. Right. I always tell her she's my fishing role model and she sort of rolls her eyes because she's not someone who. Um, who's like, I am an angler, I'm going to travel the world fishing. If it's available, she'll fish, she likes it. But she also loves to mountain bike and run and uh, ski, and she has all these other things that she likes to do. She's also a fisheries biologist, so she knows a lot about the science behind fisheries. But when it comes down to it, you know, she's not a fly fishing guide, she's not a world traveler, she doesn't do the most extreme fly fishing feats. She ultimately is the one that really convinced me to invest in the gear, invest in the experiences, be a better angler, because she's really fun to fish with. You know, we just go out and we have a blast. But with her, I could really see myself in her approach.
0: You could see yourself fly fishing.
1: Yeah, I could see myself fly fishing. So if you're a brand that sells fly fishing gear, you know, I want to hear... You're going to motivate sales, which ultimately is the goal of capitalism in this space. You're going to motivate sales from that person who's maybe not an expert just as much as the person who's doing all the big worldwide adventures. Mm. Um, And so the storytelling in all realms, I think, is important there.
0: So let's go back to this idea of showing people the outdoors. Mm. Um, And when is it too much Emerald? because, I mean, you've heard those reports during the pandemic of some state parks being overwhelmed with trash and all these things. So is there just a point where we say we have to actually have tickets so we know how many people are in this space Mm. to preserve it?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think you, I mean, you see that already in places like the rivers I guide on are permitted. There's a certain amount of people that can go down the river. Um, The forest service sets those numbers based on impact. They work with the tribes to set those numbers and think about the places that they don't want to have extra impact because they have historical significance and current significance. Um, So I think the tools for that system are in place and it's probably inevitable in a lot of spaces. I think when this conversation comes up, I'm always really cautious about um, the gatekeeping implications of who accesses the outdoors and who doesn't. Ultimately, I think the answer, again, to come back to systems is like, we clearly have a demand for outdoor experiences. So system-wise at city, state, federal, global level, it's probably a good time to prioritize continuing, not just preserving what we have, but thinking about how to grow the availability so that more people can access this without big crowds, that sort of thing. Um, I think, like, I was privileged in the sense that I grew up with outdoor sports. A lot of that's because of my race, because of my parents' socioeconomic status, because of the specific place I lived. So I think that one thing you'll see pop up in outdoor culture is this idea of, like, gapers in skiing, which is about, like, the gap between your goggles and your helmet making you look like you don't know what you're doing, or... Um, You see that in kind of like a looking down on beginners as not as they're not as cool. They don't belong here. They're the ones ruining the resource. You see this in anything like snow, especially because the idea of powder is a. That's a big deal. It's scarce. Only so many people can get the powder or you see it in fishing because there's only so many runs that you can fish. And I just really try to push back on that. And it bubbles up in myself, right? So I try and identify it in myself and identify it externally as well. Because everyone has been a beginner at some point or deserves to be a beginner. And the answer is not to shame um, or push people out. The answer is to say like, oh, the beginners in this space, maybe don't understand that there's no trash pickup. How can we better create a system in which there's a trash bag available at the start? Or how can we build that into our education? Just saying like, oh, these beginners don't belong here. It ends up inevitably falling along the lines of who's had access Hmm. to the outdoors in the more generational sense. And that falls along all the really ugly lines of the US and our policies.
0: Wow. Even in the outdoors, we have those thoughts. That's so funny to me. Yeah. Gapers. Is that what you said, Gapers?
1: Yeah, the whole like Gapers skis and jeans. It's.
0: I think people who are skiing in jeans, frankly, are kind of badass and crazy. Exactly. Like whoa, you're just doing it. You got what you got. You get out there, and you know you're going to be
1: freaking cold. And there's nothing braver or more badass than trying something that's totally new to you. You know, like <laughs> exactly. I'm not, I'm not brave out there in my Gore-Tex and my like. I've been skiing since I was four years old. There's nothing brave about what I'm doing today. What's brave is that person, that adult who says, I've always wanted to learn how to ski. My parents didn't ski or I was taught culturally that I didn't belong here, mm. but I'm gonna go up there anyway because I think that there's something for me in the outdoors and I deserve and should have access to this space just as much as any other human. Like that's that's who I wanna read the Outside Magazine story about. Same. Yeah.
0: News happens fast and often here in the Pacific Northwest. Make sure you never miss a news headline by following NWP Broadcasting on Twitter. Classical music news, more your thing? Then follow NWPB's Classical Twitter account by searching for NWPB Classical. So you, in this space, you do a lot of writing about the outdoors and bringing attention to issues. And now I want to talk about you and your exploration of yourself as your identity, uh, specifically your sexual or gender identity. Are you are you queer? Are you non-binary?
1: Mm. So I'm. I identify as a woman. It's always felt really grounding and right to me with a lot of love towards all my non-binary royalty out there. Um, for me, I identify as part of the LGBTQ plus community as a bisexual woman, um, and I include queer in that descriptor as well. And it was a sort of an adult-onset realization for me, so it's been interesting over the last you know, five years to really piece that apart and examine it. Um, I think there's a lot of bisexual and pansexual erasure in our media and our culture and so it can sometimes be hard to put your finger on that label but one thing I've really learned from that LGBTQ community is being able to embrace fluidity and change and I think labels are helpful in that they help us find community and help us understand our own experiences and also, a label isn't uh, isn't or shouldn't be a shackle, ah. at least when you're discussing something like sexuality.
0: Th- that's very insightful. But like when you have conversations with maybe people of a different generation or different background, how do you explain
1: what fluidity means? And mm, you know, this sort of comes up. I live now in rural Idaho, which. Uh, is an interesting space because on one hand you still have the internet in rural Idaho and especially the younger generations are like really understanding themselves in much more broader ways but on the other hand it's not as much a part of the conversation and i think if someone's in the outdoors space sometimes it's really i think when people want to you know latch onto binaries a lot of that's you know white supremacy dominant culture, all of those things that take a lot of work to dismantle, um, a lot of it is fear of the unknown. And when you think about folks who do outdoor sports, whether that's, you know, elk hunting, fishing, whitewater rafting, spending time in the mountains, the whole point of those things is to move into a dynamic unknown landscape, right? So if you can kind of make the parallel for them of like, hey, I know, like you're used to moving into spaces that are uncomfortable, moving into spaces you don't understand. A lot of it is just building trust so they can hear you when you start to bring that up. But sometimes that can be a parallel that people can hear of like, sometimes they'll say like, you don't strike me as somebody who's scared very often. Like, why Why does this bring up fear for you? Or And, and a lot of it, for better or worse, is just like, living your example and folks being around someone of that lived example, whether that happens in a TV show or um, in their real life.
0: Mm. I never thought of it that way Hmm. because you have a whole group of people who have been very uncomfortable hunting elk or, as some of our friends recently told me, surrounded by wolves, (laughs) hearing them howl and knowing, yeah, you ain't going to be able to do much right now. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, that's a really good point. That parallel.
1: How did you figure that out? Mm, maybe trying it every other way and having it not work. <laughs> I see.
0: I'm curious. Did your mother always know that you were bi or?
1: Oh, I don't know. That would be an interesting question for her. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I think that she, when I did tell her, I don't come from a family where I was worried about not being accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, in the direct family unit, um, because of my sexuality, so I think for her, she's like, "Oh yeah, I know you had crushes on girls before. Like, Meh. what do you want to have for dinner when you're here?" Sort of a thing, like, which is a great. I think it's for parents who are um, receiving that from your children. Like, it's a really vulnerable. Thing to bring up with anyone especially the family that really like raised you and knows you I think families great at like they can really twist the knife if they want to because they knew you when you were 13 and 14 and 15 and talk about a time I don't want to be held accountable for I was the worst um, so I think that if you're a parent and whether they're an adult child or a still in the teen or preteen years is bringing that to you letting them share with you on their own terms like i think even if you're like sometimes we don't want to talk about the intricacies of our sexuality with the people that raised us and that's no that's not because you're a bad parent it's just um awkward you know yeah some things you prefer to keep private and and so i think that letting you know just saying like if you ever want to talk more about that i'm here i love you i can't wait to meet your Future partners, or you know, I'm glad you you know yourself and you found a label that feels right to you. Uh, Let me know how I can support you, kind of thing.
0: That's so loving. I'm so mean, Emerald. <laughs> I've told my children. Oh, well, you know, what's beautiful is they're being raised in a time where all their cartoons are very inclusive. Yeah, and so when I raise her and I talk about and my son too about partners mm-hmm. you know i usually do the what i call the asian thing which is no matter who you're with you're bringing home somebody to mommy <laughs> So make sure mommy likes them. Yeah.
1: Because
0: <laughs> it's not just you.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is about a family. This yeah. is about
0: the family. Yeah. yeah. Whoever you bring through that door better be somebody I like. Mm. I set you know some standards because I've seen other families, and if they don't talk about what they want for their kids – In a healthy way, I mean, you know, not living your life through them, but at least letting them know I'm paying attention Mm -hmm. and I care and don't bring home an asshole. I don't want to do that.
1: The way my mom's always framed it is that she says she watches who we are when we're with somebody. Yes. And I think that's a uh, beautiful way to track if someone's an asshole or not, right? I love it. (laughs) And then sometimes I've been the asshole and I think that she probably was a a loving landing zone when I realized that. (laughs) (laughs) Love that.
0: Um, Well, let's go back to the beginning. You mentioned your love of the outdoors. And Mm. how did that start for you when you were growing up?
1: Yeah, it started, um, I grew up here in Moscow, Idaho, on the Palouse, and it really started with my family being really connected into the outdoors and loving spending time outdoors. I was sort of a reluctant outdoors kid. Tell me more, because I've got one of those. (laughs) Well, there's all these stories of my parents would uh, put, like, they'd put wrapped Starburst in the middle of the trail every, you know, 20 feet to get me to walk. I was a very... I'm still a very candy motivated (laughs) individual, so they were literally bribing me to go on outdoor adventures. And so, as a kid, it was just sort of the thing we did as a family. It was what we did for vacation. I remember wanting to go to Disneyland so bad and wanting to go to Hawaii so bad. And my parents were like, "No, we're going on the Middle Fork of the Salmon River." And now I, you know, now guiding the Middle Fork of the Salmon, I'm like, "Wow, this is a, you know, this is a five thousand dollar per person." trip. I'm so lucky that I got to do this as a kid and get to do this now.
0: But then this planted seeds in you.
1: Yeah. So really what happened and the the sort of flippant explanation is that I started realizing that uh, like river guides and outdoors people were really cute. They're totally cute. I was like, oh, look at that guy kayaking, you know, this (laughs) 16 year old me. Um, But the the more complex answer, I think, is that I started to tap into the culture of Outdoor sports, and was really excited about being part of that culture and that community.
0: It is, it's like a village community of people who got your back,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and mm-hmm. Uh, because there's some danger involved. Mm-hmm. So there's trust, mm-hmm. and you're expected to buck up and figure your shit out
1: mm-hmm.
0: because everybody's relying on you.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, and I really appreciate seeing that in those communities. My husband has done some backcountry skiing. Yeah. And then I remember like thinking, well, this is the kind of person I married because he was checking his avalanche monitor. Mm-hmm. So his beacon. His beacon. Mm-hmm. And then the thought was like, oh, am I going to be one of those people who goes and says he did what he loved? Yeah. <laughs> right. And then having to be comfortable with that because, well, it's special and it's beautiful and not many people get a chance to do it and he's doing what he loves. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's a, I think a really interesting topic in the outdoors. And when I end up being somewhat adjacent to through guiding and also through, I spent three years directing a guide support organization called the Redside Foundation, which supports guides, mental, emotional, physical, financial health, as well as community health. And a big conversation in those spaces right now is around risk and grief and um, how communities move through those moments of losing loved ones in the outdoors and as our gear gets better and we're consuming that outdoor media that shows us people doing really extreme things all the time. um, And just as volume more people get out there, that becomes more more and more relevant. And luckily, it's been a little belated, I'd say, but luckily that conversation's really starting up. And I think um, there's some great spaces where folks are uh, bringing that forward, because it's really, it's tough to talk about. In American culture, we're sort of like put our fingers in our ears and close our eyes.
0: Yeah. Well, you bring up a couple of things that I want to go back to. You mentioned grief. Mm -hmm. And we were just talking about Growing up in your family exposed you to the outdoors and these wonderful moments, and your dad passed away when you were, were a teenager? Yeah,
1: uh, 19. 19.
0: Mm-hmm. So if you're comfortable, Emerald, I'm wondering what should people understand about a teenager or a young adult losing a parent?
1: Mm-hmm. I think that it's interesting. I grew up in Moscow and went to college at University of Montana. And I was really focused on building community around the outdoors. That's who I wanted my friends to be. And I ended up with this amazing group of girlfriends who we all connected based on the outdoors. And then it slowly started coming out that almost all of us had lost a parent at one time or the other. So I'm about a junior in college at this point. And um, finally sort of looked around and thought about the context of my friendships and realized that a lot of us had had lost a parent really early. And that's all to say that even if I think about that group of us who had all lost parents as children or teens were all super different in the way that we wanted to talk about it, in the way that we processed it, in the way that our families sort of reformed after So I think the first thing is just that everyone's experience is really different and that I think you're allowed your experience regardless of what it looks like. Um, For me personally, a counselor that uh, focused on grief Was really helpful. I'm also a verbal processor, so therapy works really well for me, whereas I think for others it doesn't feel quite right.
0: What did you take away from those counseling sessions?
1: Oh gosh, well, I still work with that counselor now, which has been such a gift, you know, 12 years with the same support person. So we've been through a little bit of everything, (laughs) grief or not. But I think as a teenager, you know, that's sort of a natural um, transition point with your family anyway, right? Mm. You're leaving a town, I grew up all 18 years in Moscow. And so it was a natural transition point anyway, that I was in Montana and, uh, and starting to sort of build my own adult life. And so we talked a lot about just that transition. And um, she held a lot of space for me to say, okay, I'm, you know, sad about dad, he died of a glioblastoma tumor. So it was a, we knew for about a year that he would die of cancer and weren't, quite sure when it was gonna happen. And he had a pretty good quality of life for a number of those months where he was doing trips and you know getting to spend time with family and old friends. And so in those more prolonged moments, she really held space for me to say, okay, I'm sad about dad, but also like, I'm really worked up about this class that I'm in and this professor, or I'm having a friend moment. Like I think that people, sometimes grief can be really all consuming and it's the only thing you're moving through but often it's more of a strand that's just weaving in all the other parts of your life that you're still, uh, still navigating. And so I think just a lot of self-compassion through any grief. And I love the visual of grief as a spiral, where I think people think of it as this one-way journey, like you'll be mad, you'll deny it, um, you'll be really sad, you'll get depressed, and then you'll never think about it again. And the visual that's really helped me, and it's sort of water-related, which makes sense, is that idea of a, a spiral or an eddy where you move, as time passes, you tend to move further away from the painful points of it. But it's still, you know, I think anyone who's experienced that grief knows that it's still... You never just get over losing a parent. Yeah.
0: Did you know you can find us on NPR's podcasts? Just look up Traverse Talks at NPR.org and enjoy. So Emerald, can I ask you what your thoughts are on the lower Snake River dams? Mm,
1: Yeah, my, I mean, I live in Salmon, Idaho, which is, an upper basin town of about 3,000 on the eastern side of the state. Um, And salmon historically is a community that's really tied to the salmon and steelhead that migrate. Salmon and steelhead are born in their natal waters, their small freshwater streams, tributaries, for example, to the Salmon River up near where I live. And as sort of teenager fish, as I like to say it, they are flushed out to the ocean during usually the spring runoff that comes out of the mountains. They spend anywhere from, you know, one to five, six years in the ocean gathering all those ocean nutrients. And then as adults swim back to Idaho, they go into pretty much every artery of water they can get to in the Columbia River system. And
0: then lay their eggs.
1: And they lay their eggs and they start the cycle again. And some of the fish that are closer to the ocean can do that process a couple times. Um, The fish coming up to where I am, it's a one-way journey when they come back. So they die and then all those ocean nutrients are incorporated into the river landscape. Um, So when we talk about the four lower Snake River dams, we're talking about There's eight dams total between, like, my hometown, current hometown of Salmon and the ocean. Um, Four of those are real big hydroelectric projects on the Columbia. And another four are uh, smaller projects on the Snake River that are, at this point, aging pretty significantly. Um, And dams have sorts of consequences on a river system. Basically, they turn what's a usually a river system into more of a lake or reservoir system. So you have slower water, hotter water, more predators. And um, as an angler, I think that taking the lower four snake river dams out is a great compromise as far as you still have the major hydroelectric projects um, and barging access down in the lower system, but the cost-benefit of the dams, I don't think makes sense. And certainly in this issue in particular, you have um, the tribes really leading that push. And I would argue that they've lost the most um, from the hydroelectric projects within the Columbia. So I think for us, it's like standing behind and supporting that call rather than the opposite. And also, you know, we're in community with folks that farm grain and use that system. Um, I think it's a really complex environmental issue, one of the more complex in the West. I think it's easy to say, like, oh, well, there's no, it's a bummer, but there, it's too big of a system. There's no solution. And, and folks are really working towards an actual solution in this case. And will it be a little too late? You know, depends on if we get our act together or not.
0: And just to, to go back, you were mentioning farmers because they use the barge system to get their mm. weed out to port. But uh, I read that Warren Buffett apparently thinks rail is something to invest in. So rail might be good for farmers in Genesee. Just throwing that out there.
1: (laughs) A dear friend sort of early in my thinking about this issue pointed out that it took incredible vision to create the Columbia River system, right? It took imagining that you could irrigate all this land. It took imagining that you could make Lewiston an inland seaport. It took a huge amount of infrastructure. It took social capital. It took money. And so I think that humans are capable of grand vision, and now it's time to create a grand vision for the Columbia that includes all the stakeholders and not just a few.
0: Let's end this conversation with going back to you and the outdoors. Mm. If someone's interested in getting into the outdoors, what do you recommend they do as far as guides?
1: Mm. And how much does that cost?
0: Let's say you and like 10 close girlfriends want to go whitewater rafting.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I think that a Google search will find the folks in your location. Um, Don't forget that you are interviewing that outfitter. So I think it's totally okay to ask, like, what type of training do your guides receive? And you can include equity training in that ask. You can tell me about your wages for your guides. Are you paying your guides a livable wage? Um, Tell me about what your business does to increase access to the outdoors for folks who can't afford trips like this. Like you as the person potentially purchasing a trip hold so much power in actually affecting change within those workplaces based on what you ask for. And I think we really saw that starting to happen with gender in the river community you know some of the outfitters legitimately either were women or um, non-binary folks or wanted to employ that uh, demographic because they knew it made a stronger team but a lot of it was just that customers were saying we'd like a guide who's a woman on this upcoming trip and that's when I would get the phone call of like oh, Emerald do you want do you want to work a trip So you're the one with the power and control in that situation. Otherwise, there's guiding can be really expensive, but there's some great work being done um, more on like the training and like getting to know the basics. There's uh, United Women on the Fly that's gender inclusive for folks of any gender who want to learn more about fly fishing. I love the Awkward Angler podcast. There's a yes. woman named Erica Nelson who... Um, is a guide down in Colorado. has a podcast, and she's just created such a welcoming space. She says, like, learning something new is awkward. You're not going to feel cool. That's okay. I'm on this journey with you, Um, and I'd really recommend her. Her platforms and some of the affinity communities that are popping up in the social media space can be a great place to start.
0: Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. What is your takeaway of how the outdoors makes you whole? Mm. What do you want people to know about your experiences in the wilderness?
1: Hmm. That's a big question. I'd say I spend a lot of time in the wilderness under different contexts, right? So on one hand, I spend time in the wilderness as a guide where you're introducing people to a landscape Um, helping them move through that landscape safely. That's a very like socially dense way of being in the outdoors. And then there's the more, ultimately that's a job, you know? So I'm being paid to be there and offer that resource. So the other side of that social coin is spending time in the outdoors with the people that are really, um, you know, filling my cup and that matter to me, or trying to do work to increase access Especially into sports like rafting that are really gear intensive, really, there's a lot of barriers to entry um, and a lot of people making it, I think, seem more complicated than it really is as a way to control your purchase power, probably. So there's that side of being in the outdoors. And I think I, I've tried to rewind some of my conditioning on what I think of as valuable outdoor space. And I think that's important as we talk about, like, how do we increase access and availability of like a park in the middle of the city can be as important an outdoor experience as being on day three of a middle fork of the salmon prank church river of no return wilderness rafting trip like I want to value both of those things in the same way. Um, And so regardless of which one it is spending time alone in the outdoors has been a really important way to just be more mindful and self-compassionate and sort of hear my own voice talk back to me mm. which i think is a pretty key element of um of being a good member of the of the human race in general
0: isn't it interesting how being outdoors by ourselves in between trees and rivers and creatures is when we find ourselves more
1: yeah And there's a lot of fear for me in being alone. I'm a small statured woman. I'm pretty femme in my self-presentation. And so working, I think people think like, oh, you went camped by yourself or you're a guide or you spend a lot of time outdoors. Like, you're fearless and I'm fearful, so I can't do that too. And I want to dispel that and say, like, I'm scared. Every time I go, if not outwardly fearful and scared, then there's always a little something at the back of my head that's watching my surroundings and that's processing through, you know, where I'm at and what the consequences of being there at. And that was something to bring up full circle that was in the uh, guide for outdoorsy dudes was that often folks are when we're scared in the outdoors, it has nothing to do with grizzly bears and mountain lions and everything to do with other people. And that's I think really important as people, well-meaning folks who don't experience that fear as regularly start to say like how can we increase access? How can we get folks to come camping is understanding and being able to empathize with that fear. Yeah, but it's worth it. Uh, and it can make you know going for a hike by yourself feel like summiting a mountain when it comes to the adrenaline response and the sense of reward at the end. Emerald,
0: thank you so much for this conversation. Oh,
1: thanks for having it.
0: That was Emerald LaFortune, outdoor rider, whitewater and fly fishing guide, and project manager. Thanks for listening to Traverse Talks. I'm Sue Ann Ramella, and I certainly hope you get a chance to get out there and, well, traverse some terrain.